I think you'll see a lot of those international dollars flood the market and the international players will gobble up the existing U.S. stores and networks and distribution systems because they're going to be far more sophisticated business operators, by and large, than what we've seen in the U.S. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Bob Hoban, global cannabis industry expert. Bob, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. I'm back in Denver, Colorado, and uh, actually in our brand new Clark Hill, Denver office. I haven't even uh, had a chance to put my photos up yet, so it's a good place to be. Uh, I love it. Kellen, how are you doing? Doing really well. Really excited to talk to, to Bob. Really excited to kind of dive into to Clark Hill. And, you know, it's just refreshing to have another Denver, Colorado uh, representative on the, on the podcast today. How are you, Brian? Yeah, that's that's absolutely fair. But I think it's really important to always talk about where people started and where they came from. And I know Bob has some history on the East Coast, which makes him maybe a little 50-50, a little now and a little in the back in the past. So, Bob, so for the record, if you had East Coast, West Coast, if you had to select one, which one? Well, this is this is the old Tupac and Biggie debate, it sounds like. But listen, I'm from Jersey. I'm a Jersey uh, Garden State guy through and through. And uh, I call Colorado home. The Western United States is, is where I will continue to stay. I don't anticipate ever moving back to the Northeast. But I do have to say, being from New Jersey, growing up in New Jersey is a great, great thing. Uh-huh. Really is. I love it. That is a very, very fair statement for both sides. So, so Bob, for our listeners, I'm talking about you. Can you give a little background about yourself and then kind of how you got into the cannabis space? Yeah, 100%. Uh, obviously, I'm an attorney. I, uh, I graduated from Rutgers University in the great state of New Jersey. I uh, moved to the West to pursue the lifestyle. I'm an avid mountain biker, snowboarder, mountain climber. And uh, this uh, gave me those opportunities, went to law school in the West, and uh, I call uh, Colorado home, was uh, introduced to the cannabis industry around 2005 when my mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, being no stranger to cannabis, but at the time, at least a stranger to medicinal uses of cannabis, helped my my mother through uh, trying times with pancreatic cancer uh, over the course of a couple of years. And that... Uh, led me to open up a, a practice and develop an entire law firm, the Hoban Law Group, which I operated for 13 years as a leader in the space, uh, to, to build it around an industry. And now you see firms all over the world building practices, boutiques, uh, and business units within a firm around an industry versus just around a particular practice area like corporate or IP or tax. You build it around an industry, and, and that's kind of how we started. And uh, now I find myself at Clark Hill after uh, migrating the Hoban Law Group into Clark Hill in 2021. And uh, it's a good place to be. And, you know, we've seen our ups and downs in the industry, but uh, still really, really pleased to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, what's going to happen next? Who knows? Yeah, I think that's the important part. And I think one of the things that you've likely seen is tons of change and probably the advancements from an industry standpoint. And one of the things that I want to talk about first is the Farm Bill, right? It was introduced a bunch of years back and we've got an upcoming bill. I'd love to just give our listeners a high-level overview of kind of like what the Farm Bill is and kind of what is on the dock coming forward. Yeah, you know, and I'll sort of back into that Farm Bill. You know, one of the things to the last question I've sort of prided myself in my career is always looking at what's next and trying to be innovative for our clients 
uh, and serve innovative and, and entrepreneurial clients. And, you know, we opened up some of the first dispensaries in Colorado and then repeated that in multiple states. We were one of the first firms to really uh, embrace hemp, the farm bill. I'll, I'll comment on that in a minute. We were one of the first firms to work internationally uh, and, and become that global policy uh, expert and industry expert. And, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of prided myself on a lot of firsts in the industry, but the farm bill started in 2014. It was a derivation of something called the Industrial Hemp Farming Act, which was a Mitch McConnell bill that got rolled into the Farm Bill. So for that was the most sweeping reform in U.S. cannabis history. And it's pretty significant because that language remains there today after being renewed in 2018 and will ultimately be renewed again this year uh, before the end of the year as part of the Farm Bill, which is a package of agricultural policies that Congress enacts every five years. Again, first time I didn't mention hemp was 2014, 2018 with no research restrictions. And then now we'll see it move forward uh, towards the end of this year. But that was pretty darn earth shattering when you think about it. 2014, it opened up the CBD industry. In 2018, it removed all those commercial restrictions. And we started to see, you know, it go from CBD to hemp flower to alternative rare cannabinoids and the like. Uh, you start to see a focus on grain and fiber that's renewed year after year, although that's going to take some time and infrastructure to catch up. Uh, and now we've got some pretty significant challenges with the upcoming farm bill. What are we going to do about the THC percentage? What are gonna, we going to do about rare or minor cannabinoids or what some people call IHDs, intoxicating hemp derivatives? So there's a lot of things that flow around that question, but I am happy to say that we're starting to see at least a lot of the 50,000 uses of the hemp plant really become front and center. And if you do it right, from a global supply chain perspective, all you need is hemp. You don't need marijuana for anything except for the flower itself in its natural state and an oil that's derived specifically from that high THC flower. And those are two very limited scenarios. So uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating world. And when I say things like that, all you need is hemp. It makes people's heads blow up. It makes them angry sometimes. It, it, it elicits a visceral response because they say, no, you need THC. Well, look, if I grow a thousand acres of hemp, and each acre has 10 to 12 metric tons of biomass, multiply that 0.3% times 1,000 acres or 100 acres, that's a whole lot of THC. So don't tell me that you need anything other than hemp for a supply chain development. And that's really where we're at in the development of the industry. Yeah, and I want to stick with the 0.3% the measurement or concentration, right, that differentiates hemp from cannabis. That was drafted in the 2014 Farm Bill, correct? Do you know where this 0.3 arbitrary number that kind of was plucked out of the air came from, Bob, and, and why it's kind of proliferated uh, continuously as our only true way to differentiate hemp from cannabis? It's just at this threshold, it's cannabis, and before that, it's hemp. Could you kind of speak about that a little more? Yeah, so so it's an arbitrary threshold. There's a history behind it. I won't get into all of the details of that history, but it has to do with some scientific articles and the scheduling and the, the, the United Nations efforts back in the 1960s. So then you have this arbitrary threshold of 0.3%, which by the way, for your listeners out there, think about a decaffeinated cup of coffee. Decaf coffee has caffeine in it, 
but about 0.3% caffeine. So my point to you is that it's a very minute amount of THC that's left in the plant. And again, it's an arbitrary distinction, but there is a discussion about raising that to 1%. The threshold was 0.2% in Europe. That was raised to 0.3%. And then, and we're talking Delta 9 THC specifically. Then if you look at Latin American countries, you've got one, sometimes one and a half percent as that threshold. So it really comes down to how scared are we about THC as a, as a government, right? As a government with policymakers, how scared are we of the THC? Because if we're really scared about it, and it's going to cause a, a scourge on society, which we know is not true, but to play up that narrative, then we want that threshold to be really, really low. But if we understand that it can be tracked and traced and it can be controlled and having THC in our food supply chain and, and supply chain generally is actually not adversely affected society, then we're less concerned about moving it up to 1% or otherwise. Now, I do have concerns that if they raise the threshold from 0.3%, up to 1% in the farm bill, that it sends farmers a bad message. That bad message is that you can get rich off of growing cannabinoid-rich crops. And the answer is, you can't. There were some people that did early on, but you can't do that. It's just not feasible, not with saturation, and not with the fact that so many people are uh, inclined to, to sort of, you know, try to get rich in this industry. Farmers are at one end of the supply chain, and all of the value-add pieces of it come later on. So those are the pieces that generally tend to, I wouldn't say get rich, but to get more of the revenue from the industry. So here's a question with probably no right answers is how do you balance all those variables when you got politicians who are making rules about a crop that they're very unsure about and then the THC hysteria that's going on with the lack of research and understanding and state to state variability where some states have great advancements and other states have not. So how do you balance all those so that we can have some one unity decision and choice so that things make sense? Well, yeah, making making sense of, of the cannabis plant from a policy perspective is, is is something that that's going to take years, and and we've seen it, it 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 take years to just get to the discussion where we are today. So there's really four policy lanes, if you will. There's industrial uses, speaks for itself what that means. Those that framework already exists. You've got. Pharmaceutical uses, that framework already exists. Think of it as an FDA-approved medicine. That already exists. You've got nutraceutical or, or wellness uses, meaning I take non-intoxicating compounds from the hemp plant, either because it's protein or because the cannabinoids have a benefit to the body, but in not such high concentrations that it's a medicine. And then I've got over-the-counter cannabis or over-the-counter marijuana using the legal terminology, meaning I can buy a flower, I can buy an oil from that flower, and by design, it has high THC as an intended, it's directly intended to produce a psychoactive effect, whether that's under the guise of a medicinal banner or an adult use banner, it doesn't matter. It's all over-the-counter cannabis. So those are the four constructs that we have right now. But I think the way that you make some sense out of this, and some other countries are toying with this, like Colombia as an example, farmers should be able to grow the plant. The regulations that become strict should be implemented based on the uses of that plant. So if I'm growing for grain or fiber, well, why the heck do you care about you know how many what my THC percentage in the plant is? But if I'm growing it 
even for grain or fiber, but I'm collecting the residual cannabinoids, the keef, if you will, and I'm concentrating them, then where's that THC and that cannabinoids and those terpenes? Where are they going to go? That's where you regulate the uses of the cannabinoid plant. So I guess my point is it's regulation by the use of the materials from the plant versus regulating the plant itself is is probably the most beneficial way to develop a supply chain. But, you know, here we are in, in, a, in a society where cocaine is actually scheduled two under the Controlled Substances Act. And we know the dangers that cocaine can wreak on society in terms of addiction and everything else. And yet marijuana's Schedule 1 doesn't really stand to reason. And there's still so much stigma where you have psychedelics and psilocybin, as an example, that's being advanced in terms of its its medical properties and its, its future. And we saw that MAPS conference here in Colorado a few weeks ago, which was well attended, and the discussion was off the charts. Yes, these things are beneficial, but... Those are discussions that are being had with physicians and government actors, and yet marijuana is still stuffed in this box as this stepchild that we don't want to talk about because it's such a dangerous plant. Those notions have to give way, and guys, I hate to say it, but there's a term that makes me laugh, but it's also a sad term. It's called generational die-off. You need generational die-off for marijuana, for cannabis to really take the place that we want it to take and we know it should take because that's the only way to eliminate some of these crazy notions about this plant. Do you think that the Farm Bill will do anything to kind of mend? I think one of the biggest issues right now is that we've kind of put hemp and cannabis on two different shelves, right? And realistically, there's a lot of similarities if you pull out the industrial side of things, right? A lot of the end products from hemp and cannabis can be generated the same technology. So do you think we've done kind of a disservice to the plant by, quote unquote, pulling the hemp portion out with CBD and leaving kind of cannabis down here at the state level for states to decide? And and if so, do you think that there's a way for this farm bill in 2023 to try to remedy any of those damages that occurred? Those are those those are great questions. So let me, let me try to parse that about. Yes, we do the plant a disservice by creating this arbitrary distinction between hemp and marijuana. I guess it's not so arbitrary, but it you know it's a legal distinction. But yeah. it, it it creates two different sectors and it creates animosity between two different sectors. Um, so the rest of the world, when they talk about cannabis policy and cannabis policy reform, there's less of a bright line between hemp and marijuana. So it's just talked about cannabis. And again, oftentimes it's regulated by the uses, um, but it's the exact same plant. Just the cannabinoid ratios are different. And so that's the thing, you know, when people, because some policymakers will still ask you, what part of the plant is hemp and what part of the plant is marijuana? Or what's different between hemp and marijuana? And when you tell them it's all cannabis, they, they go, no, that's not possible. So I guess the point is there has to be just education, continued education on these, these things. But I also think we have to look at the merging of the systems, right? Right now, you've got the marijuana dispensary system. Uh, and again, I'm using the word marijuana. I know the stigma, but it's the legal term, right? Cannabis is the industry, in which in my mind has two distinct sectors, marijuana on one side, hemp on the other. And we have to look at merging these, these, these frameworks. A marijuana dispensary on its own has proven not to be an effective economic system. It's overtaxed, it's overregulated, and at its core, 
Dispensaries are retail outlets. So then tell me why a dispensary, why owners of dispensary licenses for marijuana are fighting so vehemently against things like Delta 8, Delta 10, HHC, etc. Guys, this is the exact same sandbox. And if you're a retail store, like it or not, I'm not advocating one way or the other. I'm just saying it's the same industry. If you're a retail store, it's your job. It's your job to sell as many things as possible, not to say, I'll sell these things, but not these things. If you do that, your investor should sue you because you are taking a position that's the opposite of what a retail store, a retail outlet is trying to do. But to get the philosophy, and you know, frankly, that philosophy is entrenched. Only synthetic compounds should be sold here, and only natural compounds should be sold here. Well, Listen, it's not a perfect world. It's a system that allows all of these things to be sold. Hemp versus marijuana, synthetic versus natural, semi-synthetic, synthesized, however you want to characterize it. It's all the same sandbox. And if you think about the merging of the systems, guess what? Dispensaries in the future will sell psilocybin. They'll sell you know, MDMA or whatever the legalized equivalent of these things are in the future, DMT and the like. Uh, it will be a holistic place to go buy all sorts of natural plant compounds that produce an intoxicating effect, but it can't just sustain as a marijuana dispensary where you buy flour, pre-rolls, edibles, and drinks uh, and concentrates. You, it, that, that system, it's proven to not work on its own because of the high taxes and because of the over-regulation. So you have to sell more products. So that's the mindset I think we all need to have in terms of marijuana versus hemp and synthetic versus natural. It's just, this is a store that is a panoply to service people people with discrete interest in buying compounds that produce some sort of intoxicating. And, and by the way, I'm using the word intoxicating because I've heard it repeated over and over again. The, the, the physicians, the scientists, they'll tell you that that's not the right word. So I'm not married to the word intoxicating, but you understand something that produces a high or a, or a psychotropic effect on the human body. Those things need to all be sold through the same regulated outfit. And that's the thing that's hard for people to get their minds around. Because then think about this, the people, the consumers you want in the marijuana sector, they don't go to dispensaries. So dispensaries have no chance. They don't have a chance to continue to survive unless everybody's stuck at home like they were during the pandemic and, you know, didn't have to pay their rent were given government dollars. And then you're going to see dispensary dollars shoot through the roof. But uh, again, I, I bounced around a little bit there, but I think the net effect to a simple question was it's got to be the merging of the systems. And, and I don't think the farm bill really can address that because the farm bill is an agricultural bill. It's intended to say, Farmers, here's the policy behind what you should plant, what you shouldn't plant, and how we support the infrastructure to, to make those things uh, 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 take place. Uh, I don't think you're going to see much guidance from the farm bill in that regard. I mean, there's there's a ton there to unpack. And I think the one point that I want to ask about is, is kind of Delta 8 in particular. So, for example, here in New York, we've got quite some issues with the, the gray market. But there is a CBD store that sells Delta 8. And I was in there the other day, and the... The person was explaining to the customers the differences between the two products. And he said, is this THC? And the guy goes, no, it's Delta 8. It's hemp derived. And the customer asked, what is the difference? Right? And the customer's like, well, nothing. Right? Like at the end of the day, the answer is same, same, but different. But I think that the biggest challenge being is that that wasn't a licensed dispensary. And those customers didn't know that. They walked in, saw the sign, 
And that's where I think the biggest disconnect is. And I think some of the people who have the licenses are frustrated by the other businesses. They don't have any of those cannabis hurdles like we talked about, the, the high cost for insurance, the, the expectations, the needing to hit all those thresholds. And I think that's the disconnect where we'd like the farm bill to maybe clarify that. So maybe that D8 is not sold in those sorts. I'm not even sure ultimately how to separate those two to make it kind of a fair balance. Yeah, well, you make great points. I mean, consumer protection is a thing that we we need to remember is really at its core here for these new compounds. Somebody working at a dispensary or a quasi-dispensary, as you mentioned, that's not licensed, they shouldn't be telling people what the products are or how it's going to make you feel. That's problematic too. But guys, it's in the same way that a bud tender in a marijuana dispensary shouldn't tell me how this product's going to make me feel. It, it's 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 kind of like, Go online, do your own research, go buy some things. Uh, and, you know, that's the way the supplements industry, by the way, has evolved. Nothing about echinacea says it's going to help you with your immune system and, and help with this or that. You've got to go do that research on your own. It's just the supplement industry pr- ensures a safe, consistent product. And you got to figure out what that product's intended to do. That is the, the nutraceutical or the, or the supplement system in the U.S. Uh, and I think it's instructive here. But the answer, too, is you can't just bite things for the sake of biting things. I mean, the same thing happened with CBD, by the way, guys, as early as, you know, 2011, 2012, because I was in the middle of it, where the marijuana businesses go, wait a second, what's this CBD stuff that they're producing and selling? They shouldn't be allowed to do that. Um, And now it's sort of transformed into, as you point out, Delta-8 and other intoxicating compounds. So, but why fight it? Why wouldn't you create a nimble structure? All of our clients, by the way, participate on both sides. They don't publicize it. They don't talk about it. They say, here's my holding company. All my marijuana licensed businesses will operate over here. And under a brand that either is the same or different, depending on their preference, they create businesses that operate over here. So they don't sit there and complain that all oh, that side gets has less regulation than we do. They play on all sides. That's what a business owner does. They have to adapt. But I'm worried about the consumer protection side of things because that's your, you know, your point's a good one. I remember walking into a, a, a gas station on a spring break with my family in Florida a couple of years ago and seeing all of the Delta-8 HHC products. And now those things are all across Europe now, HHC more than Delta-8. But how do you describe what it is? How does the consumer know what it is? Is it safe? Well, we're starting to see that. They're starting to get regulated. You'd hear, by the way, this isn't true. You'd hear that, oh, Delta-8 is going to go away. That's not what's happening, guys. To the contrary, the states are actively regulating Delta 8. And by the way, one last notion on that. That's red state weed, guys. This is red state weed. Red states are not going to have dispensaries like we're used to it. They have a freer market. Go to Nashville, Tennessee. Delta 8 and those compounds are allowed. They're legal. They're regulated. It's a far freer marketplace than Colorado or any adult use system. And it's not as regulated. And the economics work better. So something's got to give. But we have to stop fighting internally saying that shouldn't be allowed. Because the minute one side of the industry starts saying that that shouldn't be allowed, it doesn't get banned. It gets regulated. And then you're back to the question you should have answered at the very beginning. How do I participate on all sides? Because I'm a business owner. My job is to sell things. You think that eventually, and this is just a belief I hold, is that I think eventually there there will be no marijuana, right? Like you said, it'll all be hemp. And it's just from a strict economics perspective, right? Like you look at states, they have caps on canopy, right? So you can only grow so much weed. You can license stack and play those other games. Or you can get in the hemp space and grow 50,000 acres and then convert it over to Delta 9. The chemistry's there, right? And then you're literally 
providing every single form factor to consumers outside of just the cannabis flower, right? And maybe like the concentrates, right? And so with that being said, do you think it's even wise for entities to continue to pour resources into the cannabis space in some of these mature markets that are operating on these dispensary models? Well, is it wise? I mean, you know, look, a lot of people still think that a license in and of itself is the sort of holy grail. Let me get license ticket, right? (laughs) Yeah. And those those licenses are going to sell for millions of dollars. Well, those days are over, except in very narrow situations where there's severely limited licensing. I mean, look, I, I did a deal in 2020 for an Arizona license. Maybe it was early 2020. Two and a piece of paper cost nine million dollars in Colombia. Those pieces of paper cost four, six, ten million dollars. Now they're a hundred thousand dollars, if that. And because you still have to go in and put it in, in, in motion. So to look at the value of this industry, you have to look at connecting with consumers and figuring out what they want. And if consumers are are consuming less and less flour, the trend starts to move away from smoking cannabis to ingesting it or using compounds or oils or vapes, then if the flour itself is not relevant, then to your point, it's about formulations, right? And the purist, and I'm a purist, by the way, I talk about this objectively, I'm a purist. Flour, you know, consuming it by smoking traditional ways. That's the way I see the industry and I like the industry, but I don't get to impose my way on the rest of the industry and the rest of the world. And that's a lesson that everybody else should take, by the way, and not just in cannabis, just because things aren't the way you want them in the world. Go pound sand because nobody gives a damn. Go do your own thing anyway. But at the end of the day, I think that you're going to see more and more of these compounds based on formulations uh, in the marketplace. And if it's based on formulations, why wouldn't I just grow 100 acres of, of hemp and then take every terpene, every cannabinoid and put it in its own individual bucket? And then I've got a bucket of this and a bucket of this and a bucket of this. And then I create a formulation based on that. Again, the purest in me, my blood curls when I think about that. But isn't that the way it works? That's the way industry works. That's the way pharmaceutical works. That's the way creating creating products for consumers always has worked. So you can't just be wed to one thing and expect that to, to take the day forever and ever and ever. It has to be a, an amalgamation of things. And again, if, if consumers aren't using flour as much anymore, then flour becomes less and less relevant. Also, I've found these uh, IHDs or like the Delta 8s of the world, et cetera. Yes, a lot of those products are sold where they're really, really powerful, far more powerful than even a, a D9 marijuana want a THC gummy or edible or oil, but the vast majority of those products are far less potent, far less potent. And guess what? That's what the next generation wants. They want things that are less potent, not paranoia inducing, not over the top. Uh, And it's counterintuitive, but I see it with my own children and their friends and teenagers uh, and the college and educated crowd in, in this day and age. They'd almost prefer to go to a Delta-8 product than a Delta-9 THC product because the perception is it's not as powerful and it's more like, I don't know, a glass of wine versus drinking uh, you know whiskey or something like that. So again, also a lot of things to unpack in, in those comments, but I guess my point is it's, um, it's, it's a world where everything is formulated and packaged. And that takes away from the mystique and the value of the flower itself. But 
if we're creating a system where it's legal to possess flour, legal to cultivate your own flour, and to sell those flowers, there will always be a market for it. It just won't be the bulk of the market. Those other things, as you point out, Kellen, they'll, they'll fill the void. And one of the important things there is that the price will come down, right? Because the difference between the hemp and the cannabis, like we talked about, is the premium price that's put on it based on the, the intricacy of it. And who wins there is the consumers. But I guess my follow-up question to that would be, then what happens if those industries do merge like we, we think? What happens to the infrastructure then from these organizations that have done these vertical build-outs in multiple states? Obviously, we saw some big MSOs start to lay off some of the, the smaller assets in certain states. It don't make sense. But you think we'll have like a, a more combining of the infrastructure? And then where will those infrastructures go? To other industries? How do you see that working? Yeah, I mean, look, the distressed assets are are a natural thing. I mean, when I talk about distressed assets too, I think about MedMen as an example, right? MedMen came out so big and so strong and then it kind of faltered and laid people off. But guess what? Those stores, the real estate, the licenses, the cases that they displayed the cannabis in, all of that stuff became valuable to somebody else. So that's the way of the world. That's why there's garage sales, right? That's that's why there, there's things like that in the world. So so my point to you is that um, I, I think that distressed assets and being used, whether in the cannabis industry or otherwise, that's the nature of the beast, but that's also the risk these companies took. Um, think, about, think about the merging of the worlds, but forget about the merging of the systems. What if we were just talking about lobbying for federal legalization? Do you lobby for interstate commerce or do you lobby against interstate commerce? That seems like a question that, oh, I know the answer to that. But when you think about it, you don't know the answer because I, I, would, I would position it this way. Think about a, a company that is a multi-state operator that has had to invest to the tune of hundreds, if not just tens, but hundreds of millions of dollars, let's call it, in nine states because they had to build an infrastructure in each state for production because that's what the laws require. So don't you think that that MSO would lobby against interstate commerce? Because it makes their their infrastructure invalid. It, it doesn't it doesn't put any value there. Well, then think of a company that has millions of square feet of greenhouse outdoors. They're going to lobby for interstate commerce because they can service at a low cost cannabis production around the country. So we haven't even seen that bloodbath yet because there's no real discussion about federal legalization. But when you do, you think you know, marijuana versus hemp or THCD9 versus D8, you think that's a bloodbath? Where do you see interstate commerce versus no interstate commerce lobbying uh, on a big stage? And that's going to create even more division. So who knows where this goes? But uh, those are a lot of the challenges. And yes, guess what? That's the, the danger of investing in an industry that's early. And we've seen one thing in this space is that there's really no first mover advantage. Uh, you, you go in, sit on the sidelines. For example, I told my clients to steer clear of California for years and years and years. Only recently have some of them gone in and they're aggregating some of those pieces. So they get things at a discount. They're able to put together a business plan that actually makes sense and can be profitable because they didn't spend 100% of the dollars necessary. They only spent 55% of the dollars necessary to get in using secondhand, if you will, infrastructure. And um I don't know. To me, that's a good thing. Uh, not good for the early investors, but that's the risk you took. You were either going to hit a home run or you're going to strike out. And a lot of times it's striking out, not even striking out swinging, striking out looking. I think that's really important to say because I, as I've stated a bunch of times is that executives of these publicly traded companies don't work for the industry that they work in. They work for the shareholders. And I think the one challenge that people are going to forget is that when the cannabis industry becomes 
let's say, a little wider, the outside Titans, the Procter & Gamble's, the tobacco companies, those are the big boys that are going to come in and they're going to move their weight around. And they have big influence on which policies kind of make steps forward, which I think everyone keeps wanting to put on the sideline. But I think it's a crucial thing to think about now from interstate commerce and federal legalization standpoint. Yeah, darn right. I mean, think think about that. Uh, think about it just in the CBD context, right? If you if you recall, there, maybe like five weeks ago, the FDA came out with a Q and A, you know, update, this t- stakeholder discussion, they called it, and they were talking about CBD. They were talking about CBD the same way we all in the industry were talking about CBD. Gosh, almost ten years ago now, seven, eight, nine years ago now, because nothing has changed in their world, except the industries evolved around them. But yet they're talking about the, you know, CBD. Well, if, you, if you're talking about CBD in that way now, you're kind of always many, many, many steps behind. And where this goes is subject to consumer behavior. Let's not forget the rise of Delta 8 and HHC was not because there were a couple entrepreneurs that said, if we make this stuff, people will love it. They responded to client demand, the consumer demand. And this industry has got to pull its head out of its backside and recognize that its only way to survive is to create products that the consumers want and not products that you think that they want or just apply so much technology and innovation that the product is better, quote unquote, but not as valuable to the consumer. Think about edibles. If you eat an edible, well, the notion was people are going to pay more if the edible hits you in three minutes versus 30 minutes to 60 minutes. So you charge a little bit more, you put in, you know, body absorption technology. Well, consumers don't care about that. They don't. They're still buying the cheaper version of the two and waiting 30 to 60 minutes. So it's it's the industry sometimes tries to outsmart itself. Uh, and, you know, that, that CBD notion is, is somewhat instructive. But, you know, it's important to realize that it's a brand new industry. Nothing's static. Everything changes and everything's based around consumer behavior, not the way we want consumer behavior to be. And consumers are finicky. You know, this is the other myth. Oh, that consumers are so discerning that they're going to only buy organic craft-produced cannabis. And even in California, where that probably is more prevalent than anything else, it's still driven by the lowest price. The lowest price is the one that product that sells the most. So at the end of the day, We need to stop overthinking and recognizing that consumers dictate behavior in this industry and that as entrepreneurs in the industry, you got to take your activist hat off and service your customers. And if your customers want things, better go out and get it, not take a stand against your customers because you'll lose. What do you think one of the better ways for these entrepreneurs to get in touch with their consumers is? Because clearly I agree. Like I've heard so many people starting companies where they're like, we follow Whole Foods kind of mentality and we're the top shelf product. And the next thing you know, there's another one that just takes their place in six months from a brand perspective. So what do you think some of these entrepreneurs could do to kind of get in better touch with their consumers? First of all, when you talk about organic or otherwise, I mean, I, I, I'd like to see the most consumer friendly product out there, the safest, yes. you know, uh, if that's organic, or if that's just completely pesticide and, and solvent free, you know, somewhere in between. Um, I'd like to see that for consumer safety, because by the way, the industry doesn't have a chance to sort of grow and survive on a mainstream scale, unless it is uber consumer friendly. And I'm not so sure that it is right now. But, you know, to to your point about, uh, you know, some of these things in, in terms of, you know, where things are going, you, you have to recognize that it might be too soon. You know, when an industry starts, 
you can't have all of these discrete sectors of the industry, you know, products that are specifically geared towards, say, females, for example, and products that are just organic and all of these subsectors of the industry. And at, at the beginning, you just have to figure out what's the lowest common denominator for sales. If your investors are investing in you because you're going to deliver a product that's higher end or organic or driven to a specific subpopulation, then you have to do what your, your consumers, your investors are expecting from you, but it might just be too soon to have an industry that has so many discrete subsectors within it um, when consumers are really driven by the, the, the dollar and, and the bottom line and how much they're going to pay. And, and, you know, again, that's why I say, you know, the data is mixed on this, but the consumers that you want at a dispensary, don't go to a dispensary, guys. Think about it. Um, if, if I'm a, I hate alcohol analogies, but let's use this one. If I'm a beer producer, my consumer is the person who buys that $14 six pack every couple of days or the 30 pack every couple of days, you know, or somewhere in between, but it's that regular consumer. They go to the liquor store and they buy those things. I would argue that that avid user of, of cannabis uh, by and large, does not go to the dispensary. They either grow it themselves or they have a network of caregivers or other lawful producers that produce five or six varieties that are higher quality, smaller batch, that are cheaper because there's no taxes, and so they don't walk into a dispensary. So how do you can predict consumer behavior going forward if we don't even recognize that the consumers we want don't go to dispensaries right now? Uh, and there's not much of a debate about that. So anyway. So slightly switching gears, you've been in the cannabis industry for a while now, and obviously I've seen you speak on the international circuit, and I'm hoping that you're providing some guidance for them when they're setting up the frameworks for their industries to learn from some of the United States, let's call it mistakes or steps in the wrong direction. Is that the pulse you're feeling, or are you feeling that each country is taking their own unique approach? Well, you could say, you could use the word state because just like most of the states in the U.S. use their own approach, call it reinventing the wheel, the international governments tend to, to do the same thing. And, you know, the concerning thing is that they hire pedigreed professionals from large consulting firms or so-called cannabis industry experts, which we've seen them all come and go. And, you know, somebody that's worked in the space or studied the space for six months is not an expert, but yet somehow, some way, because of connections or perhaps where they went to school or where they worked, that's where these countries find some of these people. And I, and I have worked in over 35 countries around the world, continue to offer guidance uh, and the like, but you know, some of these countries tend to want to do it their way based on some expert that completely misses the boat on some of the things that we're talking about. Plus, you got to remember, every country legalizes cannabis for a different reason. What's the, the quote-unquote why? Is it social justice, criminal justice reform? Is it medicine? Is it revenue and jobs? Those are just a handful of some of the reasons. So every country has to have their own reason, and that reason will tailor how they create their program. But there's not as much of hey, what did they do over here that worked that I'd like to see done over here? There's not as much as that as you'd expect. And frankly, it, it is disappointing. 
disappointing um, because there's so many lessons that can be learned. Uh, and, you know, look at Germany. Germany has had stakeholders in the process and they, they leak all of these drafts to get public comment before they're officially released uh, for, for, for publication by the government. And, you know, that feedback is all over the map. Um, but, you know, when you're asking for feedback from the cannabis industry, unfortunately, it's not just policy or commercial feedback. It's it's feedback based on activism. And I don't malign that because we wouldn't be here talking about any of this without decades and decades of activists before us and their hard work and dedication. But when a movement becomes an industry, the discussion has to change. And the discussion hasn't changed on a global scale yet about how to create a viable commercial framework. Um, and, and that's unfortunately where the discussion needs to be focused. That's heavy. That's also sad, right? Like the, I think the, the most optimistic part of like seeing you speak on all these conferences is recognizing that these other countries can learn from the United States mistakes or hopefully implement better institutional steps to, to have a, a burgeoning market. So are there any countries that you're optimistic for? Obviously, that last statement didn't feel so well. But is there any countries in the back of your mind you're thinking are on the right track or headed to the right track? Well, I think Germany was on the right track, maybe with a little bit over-regulation uh, and, and, and over-taxation. But then, you know, that discussion was derailed uh, in their work with the European Union and the United Nations. And, of course, all of those things are, are related. Um, so they effectively decided to move away from the adult use model and to focus on a medical model that they already had in place, which I'll talk about that in a moment. And then the, the adult use part of it was kind of uh, addressed through a, a social club model or will be addressed through a social club model. So that's, in effect, a way to create a lesser regulated, not international commerce related element of the cannabis industry. And that coffee shop, that social club model, we see it in Spain, we've seen it in the Netherlands, we've seen it in many countries. And, and it works, but it's not a system that is, you know, creates transferable licenses necessarily and, and aggregates, you know, uh, dollars for from an international perspective. So then the Germans need to now be comfortable with the fact that their medical system is going to get a little bit more slippery, that the medical system is going to contain all elements of an adult use commercial system like we saw in Colorado. And again, I use Colorado as an experience to your point about what can people learn from us. Once Colorado's patient registry reached 100,000 patients, it was off to the races. It was a commercial full-fledged system because we had a severe pain catch-all in our list of conditions. If you have a severe pain catch-all, then it's a quasi-adult use system and you need to embrace that and take what they give you instead of trying to seek the perfect system. And I think that that's what the, the, the Europeans are grappling with now is, well, we're not going to have a German-led adult use program, but their medical system is going to become more quasi-adult use. And you know what? That's okay as long as people get safe, consistent access to these products because they're going to use them anyway. And you'd think that a commercial regulated system is going to produce a safer, more consistent product or allow people to produce things on their own at home. And that's where things are at. Are any U.S. operators keeping an eye on any markets or do you think that they should be keeping an eye on any markets internationally? Many of the U.S. investors are and people that produce hemp-derived products in the U.S., they can quite easily take those products and market them around the world. Many of our clients do that. We help them with import-export registration, all that stuff, taxation. But 
at the end of the day, if you're a marijuana licensee in the United States, you might just sit back and say, what the heck is the relevance of what's happening in Colombia or Germany or, or Czech Republic? I'm struggling here to bring consumers into my my store to make ends meet on a month-to-month basis. I got to lay people off. I got to shut down, you know, 10,000 square feet of my grow because it just is not economically viable. So the international movement is less relevant to those folks. But here's the thing. The international players, they've had to operate by strict import-export rules, strict federal or national international standards. So I think that if and when the United States, not even legalization, passes something like safe banking uh, that does have that add-on for access to capital markets, which is known as the CLIME Act, however that comes out, once those dollars can go through the U.S.-based exchanges, I think you'll see a lot of those international dollars flood the market, and the international players will gobble up the existing U.S. stores and networks and distribution systems because they're going to be far more sophisticated business operators, by and large, than what we've seen in the U.S., which is, you know, purely, purely driven by, you know, sales and and dispensaries. And and, and the the rest of the world has had to develop their entire framework and business model around future sales, not present sales, uh, and that's and, and to high international standards. I think that makes them a little bit more sophisticated and, and, and abil- able to, to act on a, on a big scale and to attract capital on a global scale. I like that. But yeah, there's never a dull moment in our industry, and the international stuff just makes it more exciting. But as I alluded to before we, we jumped onto the podcast, gentlemen, some of the same theories the same BS, if you will, that we heard for years and years and years in the U.S. is the same thing you're hearing from the same sorts of people in these new markets. So even if legalization framework is perfect, uh, the industry is going to have its challenges because people keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again, despite the fact that there's good consultants, there's good advisors, there's good executives out there that can help steer clear of those landmines uh, they just sometimes don't want to recognize that, um, or they ignore the U.S. altogether because it's not legal there. So your expertise is irrelevant. I've heard that a hundred times from from high level people. Your expertise is not relevant because you're not federally legal. Well, wait a second. It makes it even more relevant then. Well, they don't think so. That's uh, that must have took you for a spin. <laughs> Which case or concept is the most surprising, shocking, or ridiculous that you've experienced that is outside of the standard cannabis BS? Well, I, in terms of a business model, one thing that always sticks out to me from a policy perspective, I guess is the way I should put it, is I remember when the U.S. was having debates, when Congress was having debates in the Senate prior to the 2014 Farm Bill, and there was a discussion literally in one of the committee hearings that said, we need to modify the genetics of all approved hemp varieties so that we can, you know, so we don't have to risk that THC being diverted into, you know, somebody's pockets or mouth or otherwise. We want to modify the genetics so we can fly over a hemp field and look through a special lens and they would all glow phosphorescently when I look through this lens. So I know that they're hemp because they're from approved sources. So that's kind of one of the more crackpot things that that I've heard from a policy perspective. But it just goes to show that legislators, bureaucrats, agency people, 
uh, and frankly, mainstream population, they're still not completely comfortable with cannabis. They're more comfortable than ever with the medical uses, and they're more comfortable than ever that people shouldn't go to jail for cannabis, but they still don't understand cannabis. There's still that stigma there, that fear, uh, and that notion of you know the lazy stoner stereotype, if I even try to use it, and I don't want to be that. That's still very real, and that colors people's thinking at all different levels all the time, despite the fact that we in the industry, this is normal to us. We live and breathe this every single day uh, and we're used to it. Uh, it's still not that way out there. And, and we have to get that reality check every now and again to give us, to get us grounded and to give us some perspective because uh, things are changing, but not as fast as, uh, as you might think they are. What do you think as an industry we can do to kind of help pour gas on the fire, if you will, right? Because we've been at it for, I joke with uh, a lot of people, it's like Colorado has had legal weed now for almost a decade, right? So like, <laughs> what do you think that uh, people in the industry can do to kind of help push the messaging and the education forward? And, and what do you think we're not doing that we could be doing more of? Or I, I just sit back and kind of enjoy the ride and wait for a new generation to kind of take the reins. <laughs> well, there's, there's some of that, but you know, you can't sit back. You, you, no. you got to keep pushing it forward. The only reason we're here. So, so it's education is my point. I think when people see things in real time and education happens in a variety of different ways, for example, in Colorado, we went from having uh, no regulation of these stores across the state when they began to open up all over the place uh, and no chance of regulation, frankly, the, very quickly it turned because the legislators at the state level, they met people. They knew people. These were professionals. These were children. These were their brothers, their cousins, their uncles who were using cannabis for some purpose and it benefited their life. And they saw firsthand that those people were not, you know, I hate this term, but they were not lazy stoners. That's the stereotype we fight every single minute of every single day, by the way, to the point even my own son, who's a teenager, doesn't want to go near cannabis because that's a perception he does not want to be associated with. So it starts on all sides in, in a weird way. But the notion that you can get um, education, you can get people to see how this this thing does not harm society. And by the way, the jury's out on that one, or the jury's concluded rather on that one. This does not increase cannabis use amongst teens. Commercialization does not create any negative problems in society. It actually regulates and creates a better society and channels the tax dollars. That's a far gone conclusion now. The federal government, multiple state governments have concluded that. So while we're still dealing with the stigma in the education, I don't know, especially globally, but when you think about it, it really comes down to legislators seeing it happen in real time, giving them comfort that these business owners are responsible and giving them comfort that a next generation of people are not going to be trained to use something that's going to make them, quote unquote, lazy stoners or, you know, ruin their brain capacity or make them you know not viable members of society. Those are real concerns. And I think education is the only thing that has been lacking, but it's also the thing that continues to, to go forward. The things that the three of us take for granted in terms of these are facts. The, ga the, the, the gateway drug theory is not a real thing. It doesn't exist. That's not a conclusion that is generally accepted as an example around the rest of the world. So that education needs to be a constant campaign and we can't let up on it because that's the thing that's holding back from just a more 
laissez-faire system that maybe represents emerged systems uh, of these things around the world. But the funny thing is, it seems to be more accepted in the psychedelic sector than in the cannabis sector that mainstream people are recognizing, yes, this could benefit society, but there's still the stigma around cannabis. So, you know, one day things make sense. The other 99 days, they make no sense at all. I think that's where cannabis is the gateway drug, right? It's kind of helped open up the doors for all the other drugs to come through and have sweeping regulations of understanding of, hey, these could have medicinal effects if we research it and regulate it, right? Yeah, but then then what does that mean, right? Because look at the medical system in Europe. The medical system is a bit twisted. It's based on, I have to go talk to a doctor about my condition. And the doctor doesn't just give you a card and say, go buy cannabis like they like they do in the US. The doctor's going to say, ah, you have condition X. I think having blue dream grown organically in this region will help you because of its cannabinoid and terpene profile. And you should take that flower and you should bring it to a pharmacist and they'll create a compound for you based on that. And that's how you should do it. Or you should smoke it. That's that's a more evolved system that respects the plant, but I don't know if it's a sustainable system when you think that people are going to use cannabis in its natural form however they want, whether it's self-medicating or otherwise. And then there's a whole lot of other people that would never touch the flower, but they're waiting for there to be drugs from Pfizer and everything else that they can go get a pill form of. And whether that's as efficacious or not remains to be seen, but you know there are different segments of the population out there, and they're only going to use things in the form that they're comfortable with. Uh, And those forms are still evolving as we speak. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? Well, my experience generally is, uh, you know, I'm a a fan of the Grateful Dead. And and one of the one of the, the things that always come out to me and, and one of the lines I live my life by is uh, from a song called Saint of Circumstance. It says, I sure don't know what I'm going for, but I'm going to go for it for sure. And I think that that's the fire that everyone's got to have, no matter what it is, whether it's cannabis, your job, your life, your education, you have to have the conviction that you're going for something. You might not know exactly what that thing is, but your gut and your body and your mind tell you to go for it and you go all in. Even in this day of technology and advancements with, with you know, working smarter, not harder, you still got to work hard. The person that just works smart is never going to get anywhere compared to the person who works smart and hard. You got to go for it. I like it. All right, prediction time. Bob, cannabis will eventually be a global game. What steps are needed domestically for the U.S. to operate globally? Well, you need to legalize it federally. Once once the United States federally legalizes cannabis in all forms, um, then it will be a major player in that supply chain, and it will change the way the world treats uh, uh, the product. Now, right now, we're looking at hemp, which is federally legal, and hemp is being exported and imported across the, the United States on a big scale, but almost in a way that we don't talk about it. Now, let's not forget, in 2014, the first Farm Bill allowed the United States to export hemp compounds. At the same time, GW Pharma, Jazz Pharmaceutical now, uh, with that acquisition, they were developing marijuana-based CBD products. That's what Epidiolex is based on. Why would you ever use marijuana? Why would you deal with those strict controls and the cost associated with that? Why don't you realize that if I grow a thousand acres of hemp and I separate the compounds into their buckets, and if I grow it in a way that is 
you know, uh, uh, leading me to an API grade product, and I produce it in a way where it's an API grade product, that I can sell those products around the world. Um, we're still not there yet because our our notion of medical cannabis is still based around, hey, what strain should I use for this condition? Well, that's a great question to ask, but I don't know if that's a question that's that the medical community is going to answer in the United States. You're going to have to figure that out on your own, and then the rest of the people that aren't familiar with that are going to go get a pill from a doctor in the next 10 to 20 years, and that's how they're going to use cannabis or cannabinoids. Uh, and they're not necessarily something that cross over to one another, but uh, those are the ways of the future. And, you know, the more and more you see the FDA will get involved around cannabinoids and cannabinoid production, the more you're going to see the U.S. sort of drive their position around cannabis. Um, but it is evolving, and it's not just flower-centric. And that's the important thing to take away from this thing. It is a supply chain, and supply chains rely on consistent commodities produced in an efficient, price-conscious way. And we don't have that right now. Uh, it's evolving, but we don't have it right now. Kellen? Uh, I agree with everything Bob said. I just want to second the fact that the U.S. also usually leads in scientific innovation globally, right? And I think with legalization comes the ability to fund a lot of fundamental research that will shed light on a lot of these kind of current unknowns in terms of like polypharmacy, right? Like how my blue dream with this THC concentration and this terpene profile is actually causing a physiological change within my body and treating a specific illness or revenue a certain situation. I think once that is truly established and or at least we understand it significantly more than we already do. I see that's where the US will really uh kind of take the the leadership role like we have in other industries um from a scientific understanding perspective and and that all stems from the NIH being able to to give out more grants and it stems from more manufacturers, right? So now we have seven. We're, we're on our way, right? But I think that's where the the key to global dominance, or at least being a global player in the cannabis space as a whole, is going to stem from. What do you think, Brian? I think we won't do that. I think we'll take the other side and say that I think the U.S. will be behind in all these conversations. And I think the fact that we are so fragmented state by state and federal is completely on one way and state is on the other, that we'll never get our stuff together enough to be involved in these global conversations. And I think if we, if and when that does happen, I don't think other markets will want U.S. products. I'm not talking from a medicinal standpoint. I'm talking from an adult rec standpoint. I just don't see the game ever becoming uh, interconnected globally because I think countries are going to have so much invested from an infrastructure standpoint. They're not going to want other countries like the U.S. to come out here. And I think the only way to do that is protectionism like you're seeing here in the States where they're trying to limit operations from moving like that. Could be wrong, but I think that's the approach the countries will take. And I think with the U.S. lagging behind, I think we'll struggle to get there. Really, really great insight, and, and I appreciate both of your comments. And and, and I, I think, frankly, both things can be right. It depends on the source of the material, uh, you know. But also, when is it that politicians, that being a supporter of cannabis reform or cannabinoid medicine or cannabis as a business, when is that going to be a thing that gets people votes? not takes votes away from people. I think that's going to be the, the, the determining factor maybe in terms of, you know, where we are on, on what you guys just articulated is uh, like, for example, in Mexico, they've got a Supreme Court mandate to move forward with adult use. But 
politicians in Mexico, if they support cannabis, they lose votes. They don't get votes. So it is put on the back burner. Same thing can be said across the United States. Cory Booker's not getting notable additional votes because he supports cannabis all the time, um, but he might not be losing as many uh, as a Democrat in the state of New Jersey. But the Democrat in another state is losing votes when they take an affirmative position uh, in favor of cannabis. And I think that's where maybe that generational die-off concept comes into play, uh, and we just have to stay tuned. But uh, I enjoy uh, uh, your podcast, gentlemen, and, and I enjoy your your perspectives on things and keep on doing great work and uh, really, really enjoyed our time here today. Yeah, thanks for taking the time, Bob. This was a lot of fun. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.